This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, 50% of the population of the country of Haiti does not have access to clean drinking water. A simple device costing $35 made of mostly clay and sawdust can help to change that. We talk today with Josh Garalski, the founder and CEO of Unlocking Communities, which is working in Haiti to help to make sure that these water filtration systems arrive in the homes where they're needed and make a difference once they get there. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Josh Garalski. He's the founder and CEO of a new nonprofit called Unlocking Communities, and we'll spend some time talking about what that organization does. But just a little bit about Josh. So Josh is a recent graduate of the Loyola Institute for Pastoral Studies, where he did a master's in social justice. And he started traveling to Haiti in 2009, and he's been supporting Haiti since the age of eight. Before that, he spent three years doing national data collection for the YMCA. And he's a person who founded this organization, Unlocking Communities, when he saw the need in Haiti after the recent devastation that happened there. And we'll we'll get into that in just a moment. But uh, Josh Garalski, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you so much for having me. So let's talk a little bit about Haiti. What is going on there and what is the situation there that you saw that needed attention? So the situation that I saw that really needed attention was community members not reaching their full economic potential and their full dignity in life because they did not have the the education nor the economic resources to start the businesses that they really dreamed of starting. And so it's it's a lost opportunity for these people. It's people not getting able to see a lot of dreams that they had to fruition. Okay, so and for those that that haven't been paying attention to Haiti, what is what's the kind of on the ground situation there? They had a hurricane, right? And they had they had some other things happen that have left in its wake some economic devastation. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, so fun fact, Haiti is about the fourth most likely country in the world to uh, to receive a natural disaster in it and Haiti has in the, since 2010 had a major earthquake in 2010 that devastated the capital city of Port-au-Prince which it has about 3.5 million people living in it and They've also had countless hurricanes since then. One of the hurricanes wiped through the first town that I went to, destroying about 95% of the houses on that whole side of the island. And you started going to Haiti in 2009. And what what was the event that took you there? So the event that took me there was a solidarity trip I went on with a, a group of teenagers from my Catholic church in the suburbs of Chicago. But that trip was really the culmination, as you mentioned, of being involved in Haiti since the age of eight when a Haitian priest came to our house and stayed with us. And our church really explored the opportunity to partner with this community in Haiti. And so a Haitian priest, uh, 
priest came and stayed with your family or with your community? With my family specifically in my bedroom. And uh, specifically <laughs> in your bedroom. <laughs> in my, yeah. So what? W- how how did that happen? So did the priest just come knocking and say, "Hey, I'm here," or was this arranged in some way? No. How did it come that a, a priest was in your in your home? So St. Thomas Apostle Church, where I grew up in Naperville, um, really had wanted to explore what would it mean to kind of take the word abroad and what would it mean to walk in solidarity with another community. And they were wanting to expand beyond the work locally and do something internationally. So they had gotten connected to this group that connects faith-based organizations in the United States with faith-based institutions and churches in Haiti. And so through that process, we met a priest named Father Fritz Luis, who is a mentor and good friend of mine to this day, actually. And so he came, and my mom was interested in getting involved, and she's like, sure, I will will host this priest. And I remember, I was laughing with her last night about this, actually. The thing I remember about that host day was her asking, what do you cook a priest from Haiti? And my dad had to go out on a business trip out of town, so it was her, three kids, and a Haitian priest in the house. And did he speak English? I mean, what is the, what was, were you able to communicate? How yes, that... we were able to communicate. He was in a lot of meetings because this was kind of the first exploratory trip for him here. So I remember him not being around a lot, but I do remember conversations and he had spoken English, actually had studied at Notre Dame University before that. So he had connections to this area and to the Midwest mm-hmm. and sort of knew. And so how long did he stay with your family that first time? About a week. Okay. And what sorts of things did you talk about with this with this Catholic priest from Haiti? You know, I don't remember, honestly. And that first conversation, I don't remember. I remember ensuing conversations when he would come back and the bond that that formed with my family and kind of the hospitality that was shown is something he never forgot. And every subsequent trip, he would stay with our, he would either stay with us or would um, come over for dinner and we'd have conversations. And as I grew in and learned more about the social sector and really what does it mean to walk in solidarity with communities, he was one of my first sounding boards. So I remember reading in high, in high school, Lies My Teacher Told Me, and, you know, the discovery that, you know, Christopher Columbus, well, he made some great accomplishments, isn't the savior that so many schools and make him out to be, you know, he hurt countries like Haiti. And so, you know, having that conversation with someone who has lived that history out on the ground really allowed me to have a deeper context walking into classes. Now, you mentioned lies my teacher told me. Is that a book or is yes, that a video? What that is, is a book. It's a book. And and so what is the what is that book about? Lies my teacher told me is a book about these things that you might learn. And it was actually a book we had to read in high school be- over the summer before our history class. And it's all about these misconceptions that are oversimplified in history classes that then perceive to be incorrect, that are perceived to be incorrect or things that are missed essentially that aren't true. Okay. And Christopher Columbus being a savior of this world and that he discovered a land that no one was living in is one of them. And so instead of that, does it give a counter narrative or does it give an alternate story or does it just simply say that's wrong? It does start to – it starts to give the counter story. It starts to tell what actually happened in history, that Christopher Columbus landed in the United States where there were Native Americans living, that he came to Haiti and saw Haiti as a place to exploit the economic resources of and saw the gold there, did not see it as a place to work with the locals but rather killed off any local Native, Native Americans who were living on that land at the time. And so we first broadcast this program uh, on an evangelical station and so there's going to be some listeners whose ears have perked up. You've 
used now the word solidarity several times in our conversation. You've just talked about a book called Lies My Teacher Told Me and about kind of rethinking the kind of history that we inherit. So some of my listeners are going to be on the defensive already. And so let's kind of take a step back and kind of talk about your worldview. So are you coming at this as what they would term kind of a social justice warrior, or are you animated in your work by some other motivating factor? So I, you know, social justice warrior is kind of an extreme term. I don't deem myself a social justice warrior. I rather deem myself in true conversations. And for me, it is it is less, of, it's more about how my faith is lived out and the gospel passage that's like Jesus said, do like me and do like my, and follow me and follow my example. Essentially, and that's how I believe you know faith should really be lived out. And so, working with communities and standing with them side by side, and asking how can I support you? Not what do I have to give you, but how can I support you? How can we enter into a deeper relationship? How can we share meals together? That is, you know, in essence, what solidarity is for those of you who that might be a new term to. And so, you mentioned that this Catholic priest would come back and would stay with your family, or would visit your family when he would come back to the area. How many times has he come back to the area? How many interactions have you had with him? Countless. Too many to tell, really, over the years now, you know, 20 years later, nearly. And so as you grew to understand the situation in Haiti, uh, it sounds like, as you said earlier, that Haiti was being hit by kind of devastation after devastation. What what flipped the switch for you? What made you suddenly realize that you didn't just have an interest in Haiti, you didn't just have a kind of interested connection to Haiti through this priest, but instead you actually had a heart for Haiti and the Haitian people? Yeah, and that really, I mean, traveling to Haiti and having those personal encounters was part of it, but it was more of a deeper identity of, I love to volunteer. My parents really encouraged us to volunteer from an early age, and I am big advocates of volunteering for the relationships and for the doors that opens to other communities and opportunities that opens to sit at table with others. But volunteering is merely just a door into the community. One of the famous quotes I like is, you go stand on the margins till the margins become no more by someone named Father Greg Boyle. And being able to do that really led me to open my eyes in high school to saying, wow, like working for the social sector could be a career path for me and working in Haiti in, you know, in Haiti is an area that I was volunteering and I was volunteering locally and volunteering then internationally but really where it came to kind of the crux is in high school I remember we would pack up school supplies to send to Haiti and my sisters and I would do this and it was a great bonding experience for us we do it at the end of every school year for a few years and I remember one year the person coordinating it said don't send any crayons they told us not to send crayons because they melt and I was like I feel like a little bit of an idiot. I feel like we Americans should have figured this out before having to send them and learning the hard way. And, you know, lo and behold, now I see that really sending school supplies to Haiti is not an efficient, really, use of resources, and there are better ways to support the local economies there, which we can get into more later on. And so, as you've been doing this, and as you've been uh, as you've been moving with your heart, kind of moved towards Haiti, it sounds like, from what you're saying, that this is not coming from a, what we might call a social justice space, but instead it's a space that's motivated very much by the 
the gospel. Is that yes, yeah. definitely? Is there a particular passage of scripture that uh, that speaks to you, or something that really kind of gets you going in the morning? So the servant passage, the feet washing, and the go and do likewise. That I alluded to earlier, that example passage is such is such a beautiful passage. And my actually confirmation name is Peter. After the, really, it's because of that foot washing scene, and it's to seep down and to wash another's feet, to wash the dirtiest, lowliest part of somebody is, is, is like the deepest encounter you can have with them. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalton. We're speaking today with Josh Goralski. He's the founder and CEO of Unlocking Communities, a nonprofit that has just been started that is trying to help to bring social impact in, uh, in devastation-laden Haiti. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Josh Goralski. He's the founder and CEO of Unlocking Communities. It's a nonprofit that works in Haiti to help communities unlock their own potential to become self-sustaining and to work for economic advancement in that devastation-wrecked island. So let's talk a little bit about Unlocking Communities and how it got started. First of all, what was the seed crystal that made you say not only did you want to work in the social sector, but you wanted to start your own nonprofit? So I'm going to continue where we actually left off with that trip and with that encounter and realization that the social sector was where I wanted to work. And that, that encounter of sending crayons to Haiti really said to me, wow, like th- there, there's a little bit of a disconnect here. And, and, and so I decided to go to school and study nonprofit management in school to really work and to learn about nonprofit management. At this same time, my church had realized that they had accidentally created some dependency cycles in Haiti and that the relationship they had created was a dependency one where the community was always waiting for a check to be sent every year. And this was an unhealthy relationship. And they recognized that at that time and had these hard conversations. And I was privileged to get to be a part of some of them because I was actually studying economic development as well at the time at Rockhurst University in Kansas City along with nonprofit management, and really got to bring the research that I was doing in the classroom to light and to practice. And so it was through that and through a trip that I took in January of 2012 with the dean of the business school of Rockhurst University and a team of students and another professor to Haiti to listen to the community and listen to the impact that St. Thomas had made really as a group of outsiders and to see and to listen to what they wanted. And when we got down there and we listened, we heard heard a cry, and it was a strong cry, not for a handout, but for an opportunity, for a door to be opened, for you to trust them, and to get involved in a deeper relationship through sponsoring businesses. They wanted to start a business. They just didn't want food for the day. They wanted a business. They wanted a cyber cafe so that they could dive into deeper learning opportunities. So you mentioned a moment ago a phrase, dependency cycle. Unpack for us what that means. So dependency cycle is something that's, from a donor's perspective, someone who's contributing, is very easy to 
completely miss because you see an immediate need and you want to fill that need. Um, and I've done it myself in life. And But what you don't realize is that need's going to be there again tomorrow unless something about the cycle is changed, unless, the cycle, unless they're able to break that. And, and so the question to ask is, is a classic example is food. So if you give someone food today, where are they going to get their food for tomorrow? You said that in talking to them and in this trip that you took with the dean of, of your school, what you heard was that they didn't want a handout, they wanted an opportunity. They wanted to, to build an economic base. What does that look like in terms of what Unlocking Communities is trying to do on the ground in Haiti? Yeah, and let's let's step back and for a second just and look at that and think that, you know, think about how the humility that someone has to accept to enter a food pantry here in the United States. The humility that someone has to accept is to write on a cardboard sign, I need help, and stand on a corner, right? I am sometimes guilty of this too. You're so quick to judge them. You say, like, why? Like, what are you down on? But there takes a deep humility and a deep desperation to accept help. And we can sometimes forget that and say that really no one wants to live their life, I fundamentally believe, off of charity. Because it's not a life. It's a life of begging. It's a life of not getting able to choose what you want and being receptive to whatever you might be given. And so I, I fundamentally believe that there's very few to no people who want that type of life. And that's what we heard on this trip in Haiti. And so through a lot of discussions with that community, uh, we, we and they had a need for clean water too. And we didn't want to create a dependency model where we would drill a well or we would give out water filters. But we would never have enough money to give everyone in the community a water filter. So we said, what if we meet both of these needs at the same time? What if we meet the need for business education skills will also help them meet the need for a sustainable way to get clean water? And that's kind of where, through these conversations, the genesis of what is now, fast forward, six years unlocking communities came to be. It came to be saying, can we walk with the community? Can we help them bridge the gap and give them little training modules, little bits and nuggets of what you would get in a business curriculum here, but recognizing that most entrepreneurs that we've worked with, the 50 plus entrepreneurs that we've worked with have not gone through a business education, have not gone post-secondary. Some of them probably haven't even finished secondary school because they needed to work on the farm, giving them these basic pieces to help them in their other businesses. So for those of you who haven't been to a country like Haiti, you're normally doing two to three different businesses at any time. Everyone is. You're probably growing some crops, some of which you're, which you're selling. You're maybe sewing or you might have a motorcycle taxi business. And then this is kind of a third thing that can be an income generation. So we said, what if we invite a group of entrepreneurs, partner with a church or partner with a community school and say – and in this case, it was the church that was down there – and provide training opportunities to a group who's most – mostly women because the women can really speak to other women about the need for clean water and they're even further marginalized in the communities and give them this training opportunity both so they can go on and start other businesses or enhance the businesses that they're already working on but also so that they can become our community entrepreneurs and they can go to their community members and say, hey, we, I've learned about this water filtration system. Do you know that you are buying bottled water on a daily basis? And if you put together the amount of money that you're spending daily on clean water, it can range from 50 to $200 a year. Not to mention there's a negative environmental impact because it's all plastic and it gets burned. And then for people who aren't even drinking clean water, there's an even greater cost because you go to the hospital. And if you go to the hospital in Haiti and you need medication, it's minimum $25, $50, you know, two hospital stays alone. So. 
income. And so when we're talking about these kinds of numbers, I think some listeners may say $200 a year, that's nothing. 50 bucks, that's nothing. What is the kind of average daily income of a person in Haiti? Let's remember, you know, there's about a third of, at least a third of Haiti, if not more, live on less than $2 a day, which is very abject poverty. And again, these numbers are rough. Different statistics have different years and different points. But generally, there's a good segment of Haiti that lives on less than $2 a day. There's a whole nother segment that lives on 3 to $5 a day. And that's a population we're really, really trying to work with because they have that step to jump, to move up one level in the economic ladder. When you go into these communities, you're not giving them free charity. You're instead, it sounds like, giving them some educational resources and you're giving them, and help me understand this, is it, is it a product that they sell? Is it something that they then, are they selling clean water to other people? How exactly does the economic model work? Yeah, that's a perfect segue. You read my mind into the next step in the model. It's We're giving them a product that we actually found out about through a translator we were working with on this trip. And he's like, I know this water filter, which is made locally on the island. And it's made out of clay, silver, and sawdust, three very simple ingredients that can be made locally and it can provide clean water for a family of five people for 10 years and so it's it's not an imported solution it's important for them to realize it's local and that has dna it's clay which is natural they're used their ancestors carried and still store a lot of things in clay jugs and clay jars and also that they can it's simple to use it's, you don't have to do any crazy maintenance to it all you have to do is when you start not getting much water filtering through the filter you have to scrub off the outside of it because it's like a screen. And so eventually once the screen gets clogged, no water will be able to pass through it. And so when when they have this item that's locally made, locally sourced, and they're able to use it, what I'm hearing you saying is, first of all, there's kind of there's kind of local pride. It's not that somebody sent this from somewhere else. This is something that we could do ourselves. But Maybe they didn't have the economic resources to get it or they didn't know about it. But once once one of these filters shows up in a household, how does that begin to change things? Yeah, and I think I think you hit on something very key. It's once they have access to it. So these communities do not have access to buy a water filtration system if they want one in most cases. There's no water filtration store in the community market. The other big piece of our model is the dignity. They have a dignity of choice. They're, this isn't free. They get to choose if they want to buy our water filtration system. And we're also now selling clean burning stoves and going to be selling solar powered lights down the road a little bit. But to be able to have the dignity to choose which items they want to buy for us, do they want to buy our water filtration system? We're not, you know, giving them away, but we wanted to make sure that we give them access to the highest quality water filtration system that we know of that's locally made. And then we offer them microfinancing, recognizing that in Haiti, about $50, which is what one is sold for, no one has $50. A lot of people don't have $50. Some of them can find $50, but no one has $50 right at the moment. But if you say, walk with, walk, let us walk together for a year and you pay $2, you know, $2 a month or so, you'll pay for that filter. And so explain microfinancing for someone that hasn't heard that term before. So microfinancing is, is basically just a word for micro, meaning small loans. So our community entrepreneurs are, are giving families a loan in the form of a water filter and they put down a deposit, then agree to pay the rest of the cost over a few months. And back to the fact about clean water, and in one year, minimally, you spend 
spend $50 on bottled water. So instantly you just made up the cost to filter within a year and have nine more years to use to filter for free. What are some of the obstacles that you encounter when you're doing this work? What, what stands in the way of this being successful? So what stands in the way of this being successful is a mentality change in these communities, right? For years and years and generations almost, they have been told that the only way they're going to get clean water is is when they see these groups of foreigners passing by them. And these groups of foreigners might have 100 water filtration systems with them. Then it's a fight and it's a bribe to see who gets that 100 filters. It's never going to meet the need of the whole community. And so they've been conditioned to say – we are poor. We need a f- something for free. The first thing people ask you when you're an American and they don't know why you're down there, they ask you, how much money do you have to give me? Can you give me money? They'll tell you whatever you want to hear so you can give them money. But it's it's so much more than about that. That is that is like this economy that's built. And, you know, it's a funny story We with the church. We um, sent down a bunch of recorders, like little musical instruments for the school kids. And we thought, oh, they'll play them. They'll keep them. No one saw the recorders after the first trip to Haiti that they went down on and we're all sure that they got sold because why no one in this community in Haiti really wanted a recorder we just thought it was fun to send down but they all got sold sold in the community and so there's a great economy in Haiti of taking what you're given and making an economy out of it and so we're changing that these community entrepreneurs are saying no you as a family can afford clean water right now you can afford it today you can improve the life of your family you can produce economic savings and you can buy into this mentality change and saying that we together can bond together and start to mobilize our neighbors to say, yes, we can make a change in our community. And then when they're mobilizing together, they can then demand that other changes be made. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Josh Goralski. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Not Seen Radio. Thank you. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we offer you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Josh Goralski. He's the founder and CEO of Unlocking Communities, a nonprofit organization unlocking the strengths to empower communities and elevate Haiti. So I've got to ask, you went from basically an idea in school to mounting a full-on international nonprofit, because that's what you've done. Help me and my listeners understand how somebody goes about doing that, because I imagine some of my listeners are mission-minded, and maybe they've seen a need, maybe here locally in the United States or maybe in another country, but they've never imagined that they could actually take the step to start a nonprofit. So walk me through the basic steps of, of what you did to get this off the ground. Yeah, so we started with that conversation in that one community, and we were fortunate to find some funding to work in that one community. And, you know, that one community, it was a college project of a professor and some students working in one community to do one thing. The rest of my friends graduated. They moved on to do other things. The professor moved on to do other things as well. And I stayed with this community. We took a job with the National YMCA. But every break, I would keep going back down to Haiti. And my senior year in college, I heard a 
presentation by someone named Johnny Immerman, who founded a wonderful organization named Immerman Angels, which is a one-to-one peer cancer support network. And he gave a talk to a group of students about why do you start a nonprofit? Like, how do you know if you are called to start a nonprofit? And it's really tough. And I joke with a lot of people that I say you normally shouldn't start a nonprofit because there's probably someone in the world doing exactly what you're doing. This is one of the cases where there truly isn't anyone. I studied in each of those years while I was at the Y, I was researching, studying learning about other organizations and no one was doing the exact type of work we wanted to do. And so when I left the Y, I got a grant to actually work with the nonprofit that made the water filters called Wine to Water and try to see if it made sense to really work underneath them. And well, that was a great stepping stone and allowed us to launch the pilot communities. We realized that to achieve the growth and to achieve the scale that unlocking communities needed and that the Haitians were frankly asking for, we needed to do more. We needed to dive deeper in this economic development. And it was more than just about water. It's about the economic development of these communities. And so that is when Unlocking Communities formed. Johnny Emmerman talks about you, you think about this every day. You wake up every morning wanting to do this. You have to know that. And it's, 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 a, it's a really hard journey, especially in the nonprofit world. There are so many great organizations doing so much great work competing for a limited amount of resources. Now, let me see if I've got the model that you just gave to me. Okay, the first step is start small. So you start with one community. The next step is do your research. Like you said that every chance that you had while you were working in another job, you were researching and you were exploring, am I just reinventing the wheel or am I doing something that's actually really new? And then what I heard as a third step is as you kind of get those pieces in place, scale up when and how you can and and make sure that the that whatever you're doing is scalable so that it will grow. But the most important thing that I've heard all throughout what you've been saying is that you need to listen along the way. You can't go in imagining that you've got the right answer. You've got to be listening to partners on the ground and you've got to have humility. That's another word that you said. You've got to have humility about how you approach this. So first of all, do I have a do I have a good crystallization of your model? Yeah, I want to highlight two things. One, listening. The the first community And what we do now with Unlocking Communities looks significantly different. We learned a lot of lessons in that first community that we have changed and things have changed in the model. The second thing is really the step that I emphasize everyone who's starting about thinking about starting a nonprofit. And I talked to quite a few people who are thinking about starting nonprofits or socially minded organizations. I asked them, go try to work within another organization doing similar work. Try to bring your model within another organization. I tried to see if I could bring this model into the why. That unfortunately didn't work at the moment. Then I went to Wine to Water and worked with them and walked with them for a year and a half. And so that is really the step that's hardest because you're ready to jump in. You're ready to do it. But you know what? We are better together was one of the wise models. And it's so true. We're better together rather than working in our own silos. So if we can bring bring that together and if you can find someone who's willing to incorporate your work into their work, that's when the true synergies really happen. You mentioned a moment ago that you learned a lot from piloting in that first community and that you changed a lot as a result of what you learned. So tell us a story or two. What did you learn in that first community that then changed? There's so much we learned in that first community. We thought that um, we would give them seven years to pay back their microloans just because they'd pay like 25 cents a month or 50 cents a month. But you have to mark up the cost of the filter because someone has to go and collect that payment every month. And the Haitians said, no, we will pay for this filter in like three to four payments. So that was a big surprise to us. And you know, there, there is money in these communities. There's a sm- there is money when there's a willingness to want to buy something. 
like just just like here if you really want something you're gonna find the money to get it so that's one of the the other one is we went to corporate we didn't emphasize the entrepreneurship part on the ground more we emphasized that this was a business we were gonna set up like this rigid american type business and we wanted there to be a board of directors there and we wanted there you know the two people that the community selected to hire first was actually business people and they were great at sitting in an office all day and if we needed them to do accounting they would have done a great job but to get out in their community and motivate this mentality change and have these conversations that was really uncomfortable for them so we spent a year a year with them trying to make it work and then shifted the model to like a commission only model and having community say sales agents and it was actually the woman in that community who was the one who was like more the technician getting the filters ready for sale she was the one who when they left in their absence she took it over and started selling the filters and that's when i saw the real true potential and the real importance that women really drive these enterprises and that's why every community has women involved in it each community gets to pick their exact composition of entrepreneurs but you know in most of our communities it's a community the community manager is a woman what fascinates me about this is i'm hearing echoes of other times that these sorts of things have happened and in american history so if we look at the civil rights movement the highlander folk school out of north carolina and tennessee one of the things that they did is that they would go into communities and they would work with barbers and hairdressers to help to start what were called the freedom schools where they were teaching literacy the reason why they picked barbers and hairdressers two reasons one they understood hustle they understood and they were a natural gathering point but also they were seen as respected figures in their community and so talk to me a little bit about those social dynamics as you're as you're thinking about who will be a good entrepreneur what are some of the qualities that you're looking for in identifying who to approach about being a, a member of unlocking communities a really funny example actually just came to my mind and I've used this with a few other people. It's like the cuckoo knives sales of Haiti. I think my sister jokes with me. Are you, are you like the cuckoo knives of Haiti? And for my listeners, what are cuckoo knives? It's this knife company that college students oftentimes get asked to do. And they're like, do you want to make knives? And it relies on you selling to your family and friends these set of knives. And you get commissioned to sell these knives here in the United States. And, and in Haiti, it's frankly kind of similar and really recognizing that, you know, each community is a web and very intricate and powerful web of social dynamics, of relationships, right? And to enter in and sell something that's like here, like buying a major appliance or even buying a car, you know, could be equated to buying a car here because it's proportional to the amount of income that you have. And and so this is like, this isn't a easy little fit purchase from This is a significant thing. And especially in countries like Haiti, it's all relationships. Every sale, no matter how small it's done, is based in relationships, right? It's a barter-based economy. It's a negotiation-based economy. And so really each entrepreneur brings this web of their relationships to other faith communities, to other groups in the community, to households, and it's weaving those relationships together and working with the communities to pull a unique group of people together to sell these products and to be entrepreneurs, and they all come with their own relationships, and I've done a lot of asset-based community mapping lately, too, in communities, understanding where the businesses are and where, where, where different people live and who has access to which people and really helping them understand and kind of helping them see how each of them have a different circle of influence they can talk to. Now, asset-based community mapping, that sounds straight out of business school. So you're going to have to explain that to me. What is that and how does that work? So asset-based community mapping says, like, look, let's look at a community and let's go household by household or business by business and really draw on a piece of paper as a group what each business is and what each house does or what the skills in each 
beach house are are these is it a farmer is it a carpenter is it a livestock grower is it a child is this the mayor of the town and it's really looking at that on a map and then then identifying who which entrepreneurs live where and which people do they know personally now, you mentioned selling the knives to the family members it it seems to me and maybe I'm thinking about this the wrong way that there'd be a natural limit to that kind of model like eventually you run out of family members or eventually the family members get tired of you asking to sell things to them is there a kind of natural limit to growth to this or is there what is the scale of this yeah. i guess is what i'm asking yeah i mean this is this is a temporary business opportunity for them that they get experience. It's an experiential learning project like some people might have done in school. So going out and learning by doing. And so they can take this learning and go back into their own businesses. Or as we have capacity, we help give microloans to help them start businesses that they've thought about while they're selling the water filtration systems. There is a natural limit, but these communities also, I'm reminded of something really important recently, is I was my variation of trust. There is so many fake products in especially developing countries and knockoff products. That trust is so important. And as you sell a filter to someone and then you go in and then that person you sold the filter to goes and tells their friends about it and they say, I trust this person. I've drank this water from this person. Then your social network and your there's an expansion of people who you trust. And as that trust grows and what I got from what you just said is that this is not the long term solution. This is not going to provide them an income for the rest of their lives. What this is doing, if I'm hearing you correctly, is it gives them a skill set that they can then take into new ventures that they create and think of. And you've, and you've given them the idea, hey, there's stuff here in Haiti that we can use to help to build a local economy. Exactly. They do earn commission with each filter sales. And they've actually asked us to save their commission for them till they have like $100 in commission. You might think $5 is great. I want it today. But actually, they want to save that up so they can buy an investment for their family with it. So they asked us to save it and, and react as their kind of savings account until they have $100 or so. And then they, we pay it out to them. I should say the local community business pays it out to them. And you started in one community. How many communities are you working with now? We are now in five communities and with plans to be in another five by the end of 2019 and 20 next year. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalton. We're speaking today with Josh Garalski. He's the founder and CEO of Unlocking Communities. It's a nonprofit organization unlocking the strengths to empower communities and elevate the country of Haiti. We'll be back in a moment. Hey folks, this is David. Thank you for listening and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Commonweal for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a longtime reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Commonweal podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. That's commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. 
You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here today with Josh Garalski. He's the founder and CEO of Unlocking Communities. That's a nonprofit organization unlocking the strengths and empowering communities in the country of Haiti. Well, you mentioned in the first part of our program that you really saw a gospel motivation for this, and you first got the idea to be doing this work in Haiti because a Catholic priest from Haiti came and stayed with your family. So I guess where I want to go now is to ask you, as you've been doing this work, how has it begun to impact your faith? What has been the effect on you? It's tre- It's been tremendous. I mean, both going through Loyola's social justice program and understanding a little bit more of kind of the theology and seeing, seeing this message in the gospel and seeing how this work is the gospel lived out through an economic model of empowerment for communities. But it's it's also just in the conversations with the Haitians and talking about their faith. And, you know, we oftentimes open our trainings with prayer if they're comfortable with it and they want to because these are normally houses of prayer where we're doing our training in. And so in having prayer, priests, you know, get up at the end of their masses or services and talk about the need for clean water and talk about how important it is to see this kind of change in their way of thinking and mentality and be able to decide to purchase one of these systems is so powerful. Given the fact that it has natural disasters, earthquakes and hurricanes and economic devastation, they really have found a soul of the country and a, a, a way of having hope in their religious faith. Did oh, yeah. I hear that correctly? Yeah, I mean, everyone goes to church on Sunday. Every Everyone. There is no traffic on Sundays because it is church day. It's not like everyone's just home sleeping. It is, it is really a Sabbath still. It's a day of rest. It's a day for church and it's a day for family. And, you know, kind of part two to the answer of your question is a deeply personal one, too. So my dad passed away this year after a long battle with Crohn's disease and different illnesses. And some of the last words that he said to me were, you got a lot of work left to do, and I'm sorry I can't be here to help you do it. And for me, that was a deep call, and it ended up being that unlocking communities, we filed filed the incorporation paperwork a few days right after he passed away. And it was was just like the very icing on the cake, and it was – it's symbolic because our annual paperwork is always due on his birthday, October 1st. I'm very sorry for your loss, but what an inspiration to have that moment kind of crystalline in your mind and to have that date kind of mapped out. That really gives you a sense of purpose, doesn't it? Yeah, and he was the one who always from an early age would see an injustice in the world and question it. He would volunteer from a very early age in juvenile prisons and just be and sit with people there and talk with them and listen to them. And he'd come home with this frustration that, you know, he'd say jail is the best place they knew. And you see these young girls get out of jail and then come right back into jail. And so hearing this inspiration, I've taken it, you know, in a little bit different direction, but it's it's really his legacy and his life lived out. And so as you're doing this, this, and as you're, you're doing this work and as you're thinking about the legacy of your late father, and thank you for sharing that with me and my listeners, uh, that's an act of trust that I want to honor in this conversation. As you're thinking about those motivations, I'm sure that you encounter obstacles. And so let me ask you, first of all, what is it in this work as you've been ramping up to five communities for unlocking communities down in Haiti? What has been the greatest frustration that you've encountered in the midst of this? Wow. That's a that's a that's a great question. Frustration is 
There's a lot of frustrations. I mean, there's naturally in Haiti, you have to recognize that you're going to be frustrated with the government. For example, we were going to take a group down to Haiti to see this work firsthand, and the government decided it was a great time to have a little coup, a little political chaos happen. And, you know, for everyone's safety, we had to postpone that trip and recognizing that that's going to happen. And you can't do a lot to change it if you wait for the government situation to get better. You're going to be waiting for the rest of history, possibly, and it's not. It's not till the work that I believe we gets done, and you know, really, I believe it's the community members in their own communities can inf- impact their government more than any foreign outside entity can. So it's if we can enable and equip these these Haitians with this economic potential and this economic mobility, they gain then more political power and a bigger voice too. And so thinking about that frustration, and you mentioned the kind of government frustration and the fact that there's instability. Mm-hmm. I, you also earlier in the conversation mentioned corruption. And so let's just, because I'm sure that some listeners, that's foremost in their minds. It's like, yeah, economic opportunity. Somebody's getting grift somewhere. How do you fight against corruption? How do you monitor corruption? What, what do you do to stave that off. Yeah, and our organization strictly the the money that goes in the communities is given in the form of a loan of filters, and it's given to the community partner. And they sign an agreement with us to make sure that this this supply of filters is going to be just for that to be used as a loan to start a business. And I tell each we tell each community, my country manager does, and I'm there if I'm helping do the training. That you know, if you want this business to continue, which you do because you want to earn more income, then you have to collect the loans on these filters. If you don't, there is no business anymore. Well, we talked a moment ago about frustration, and let's flip the coin now, and let me ask you, what is it in the midst of frustration, what is it in the midst of these uh, kind of obstacles that keeps you hopeful? It's the people. It's the people. They are incredibly resilient, as we talked about. They've survived so many natural disasters. A story my country manager, Ernso, actually was sharing with me after I shared and opened up that my dad passed away. He shared that at the age of 12, his dad passed away. And he passed away by getting struck by lightning. And I was just taken aback. I was like, whoa, I've never heard of that happening to anyone. I mean, I knew it was like a thing that can happen, but I didn't know it could happen in Haiti out of all places too, as if you didn't have enough challenges to be working against. And he's like, Josh, you know, it's challenging. I'm the oldest in my family. And there's an obligation as communities like this. If you're the oldest in your family, to pay for your siblings to go to school. And if you want to go to good schools, you definitely, there's always school fees to pay. And it's not like like here where school is truly almost free. It's they, There is a, still a cost to go to school there. And then, you know, to take their siblings to possibly higher education because he was able to get, you know, uh, he's able to just in finishing now his college degree. And being able to have those conversations with him and hear this and hear why what keeps him going. And, you know, this is just one of a few things he's working on. His his passion was, before this, he opens and runs an English school in Haiti that we I t- take people to and we work with. He's helping kids in his community learn English on a daily basis, recognizing that if they know English, it's another skill, it's another chance, it's another way for them to get a better job to get out of that situation in life. But, you know, he walked about 12 miles a day back and forth to school. And he said it rained most of the days, too, down this dirt road. And see that dedication to get a good education, to see just the lengths to which Haitians will go to is incredibly inspiring. And hearing these stories told, hundreds of them, I could keep going on for hours. I have a whole nother podcast, a whole nother radio show on just the stories that I've heard. 
Well, I do hope that we have a chance to have you back and have you talk more about your successes with Unlocking Communities. Josh Gorolski, thank you for the work that you're doing, and thank you for taking the time to speak to me and my listeners about it today. And can I put in a plug just to follow us on social media at Unlocking Communities or go online to our website, and any any support helps in just following along, unlockingcommunities.org as well. Thank you so much. We've been speaking today with Josh Garalski. He's the founder and CEO of Unlocking Communities. He's a graduate of Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies, where he did a master's degree in social justice. He began traveling to Haiti in 2009, but he's been supporting the country since he was uh, the age of eight, and he spent three years working as a national data collector for the YMCA before starting Unlocking Communities. And again, you can find out more at their website, unlockingcommunities.org. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kejit. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.